Good to see you this morning. Good to be with you. Praise God. Oh, I didn't turn it on. You told me that someone would yell at me if I didn't turn it on. <laughs> Did I get it? Green. Green, we're good. We're good? Okay, good, thanks. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, my wife said you have a big mouth anyway, so... so. She loves me. <laughs> uh, let me get back. Long, long reading this morning. I thank you for uh, for it, uh, but it's good. It was a good. It was a good reading too. And I thank you. Thank you very much for you, for reading it. And I, I was just thinking about this. Have you ever been looking for something that's right in front of you? One of my think, one thing that happens to me all the time, and uh, when I'm working around the house or something like that, I put my tape measure down, and I go a couple of minutes later to pick it up. And I can't find it. I know I haven't left the area. I know I haven't gone anywhere, but it's not here. So I go around frantic looking for my tape measure. A couple of minutes go by, and then I finally wind it. It was right there. I was looking straight at it, but didn't see it. So I pick it up. Oh, here it is. I go ahead, I measure what I was going to measure, I put the mark on the wall, I, I mark where the hole is that's going to get drilled, and I go down and, all right, where's my drill? I, th- I, I, th- I, th- I think I spend as much time looking for my tools as I spend using them. And they're right there. I know they're right there, but I can't see them. Or if you have had something that you knew you put it in a certain place, you knew you put it there, and it wasn't there, and you refuse to, find, to admit that it wasn't where it was. So you keep going back to the same place and looking for it. I know I put it there. I know I put it in this drawer. So I open the drawer, and I look in the drawer. It's not in the drawer. Oh, I know I put it there. So I go back and look in the drawer again. It's still not there. You know, it didn't magically appear then again after that. And then after a while it goes by, you find it somewhere else, and you say, oh, yeah, now I remember. I put it over here. But what happened before is I refused to accept that it wasn't where I thought it was going to be, where I, where I thought it should have been, where I knew I put it. I refused to accept that. Well, how about this one? Have you ever gotten into a political argument with somebody who has an opinion that's directly opposite of yours? You try and discuss the facts, quote-unquote, the facts. But the facts don't matter because that person has already made up their mind. The facts don't matter. They probably don't matter to you either because you've already made up your mind. No amount of facts will change their opinion or yours. You've seen the same things and come to different conclusions. That's really weird, right? Before I was a Christian, I believed I was an atheist. Now I know I really wasn't, because atheists don't really exist. I know that now. But I thought I was then. I had all my arguments prepared, how men were self-created through evolution. It was a proven fact. After all, I learned it in science class in school, right? So it had to be true. I can't tell you exactly where my mind started changing, 
But I've gone from I can't, a, a world where I can't see God existing to a world now where I can't see that he doesn't exist. I can't see it. It doesn't make sense that he doesn't exist now. Something happened in my worldview. Something changed. A piece changed in there. And then my, the, the way I had the world all put together started falling apart. And it came back together again with God being there, and it all make, it all, I see it all from a different perspective now. It all, it all looks different now because of that one piece of information that God exists, changed everything. This complete change in the worldview can also be called what it's been called a, a paradigm shift, right? Where you, where, and that was a uh, term that was first used by American philosopher and physicist in the 1960s called Thomas Kuhn. And it had to do with science. He was looking at it from a scientific perspective. An example of that today we can see in, uh, relate to what is called the germ, germ theory of disease. Before, before Louis Pasteur's uh, 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 experiments, they didn't know germs existed. We, we know it today, don't we? We're all wearing our masks. I've got my mask here. I've got my mask over there. I've got an extra in my back pocket here, just in case the strap on that one breaks and I need another one, right? So, and I've got another one in the car, too, in case, in case I lose two of those. So you've got them everywhere now. And why is it? Because of germ theory. Before germ theory... Scientists believed that disease just spontaneously occurred. They had no reason for it. They didn't know anything about germs, but we know about that now. So it changed the whole way of how we look at things. It changed it right down to uh, doctors who couldn't accept the fact that the mortality rate among their baby deliveries was higher than it was uh, from midwives. Midwives were, their babies lived more through when they were delivered by a midwife than when they were delivered by a doctor. And the reason was doctors wouldn't wash their hands. And why wouldn't they wash their hands? Because they didn't know anything about germs. It didn't make any sense for them to wash their hands. Now what do doctors do all the time? They wash their hands all the time. The midwives washed their hands before they delivered the babies. Doctors wouldn't. They had a whole different way of looking at the world until germ theory. Now, how does this relate back to, back to uh, what we're talking about here? Well, this is all Ralph's fault. He called me up and he said he wanted to talk about, uh, I should talk about uh, Mark chapter 12. I said, Ralph, the whole chapter? He says, well, do what you can. So I said, okay. And I started looking at it. And I'm looking at, I'm looking at Mark chapter 12 and I said, and I read it, and I reread it, and I said, well, can I take a piece of it? Sure, you can take lots of it. There was, there was a lot of different little vignettes in Mark chapter 12, isn't there? But there's a commonality between them all, and I started putting it, to, putting it together. And I think it's relevant to our study today on a couple of different levels. We can probably back up a little bit. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he, he walked into a definite paradigm. It was Passover time, Right? There was a whole thing going on here. This is how we do Passover. And the first thing Jesus does when he walks into Jerusalem, the very first night, back in chapter 11, he, wa he walks in, and what does he do? He turns over the tables. 
he took the, the way of how they do things and flipped it over. I used to have a boss that, at work that used to say, every once in a while you've got to flip the table over. Because we get used to doing things a certain way, and he wanted to change it, and there's only one way to do it. You flip the table over. And that's what Jesus did. He flipped the tables over. And then he left. That night, he left. He turned the table. Who was he? This, this guy that came in and took that whole system of how they were doing things and flipped it over. Jesus didn't fit any of their paradigm. Not one part of it. He didn't come from the right family to be a, a leader. He didn't have the right education. He didn't have any of the right qualifications for him to be making these kind of statements. Who is this guy? And what is he doing? And where does he come up with, where does he get the, uh, the authority to do this kind of stuff? And that's what they begin asking him in, in, in the, at the end of chapter 11. Who are you and where do you come off doing this kind of stuff? You pick that up in the end of chapter 11, it's, it says Jesus' authority is questioned. Of course they have questioned it. This guy just came in off the field and flipped all the tables over in the temple. He messed up the whole Passover. And he, it's kind of interesting the way he answers them. If you look at it, he doesn't answer them by saying who, where he comes from, but he asks them a question. Well, but what about John? Where did he come from? Whose authority did he have? John was preaching a baptism, and the baptism was of repentance. Where did he get off doing that? I love their answer. They don't come out and answer him and say, well, we think John was from men, or we think John was from God. They take the safe route. We don't know. We don't know where he came from. What a great answer, huh? Well, Jesus says, well, I'm not going to tell you then. What authority? They wouldn't have listened to him anyway. They couldn't see him being the Messiah. Did you see it? In their paradigm, in their worldview, he, he couldn't be it. And he starts by giving them a parable then, a story of the, of the, the vine vineyard. And it goes back to Isaiah chapter 5, if you read that, but you could get a chance. I mean, the same story's in there, except the vineyard is bad. It won't produce grapes. Here in this vineyard, it's the tenants. And who are the tenants? They're the leaders of Israel at that time. It's not that the vineyard isn't producing fruit. Think about that, going back to John. Those people were in line waiting to be baptized for repentance. That fruit should have gone to, to God. Leaders of Israel were withholding it. They were withholding the fruit that belonged to God. And they wanted this guy to stop doing this. I mean, you take that whole parable there. We read it here. I mean, I don't want to go over the whole thing again. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of verses in there, 44 verses in chapter 12. And if you listen to it, the, 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 uh, you, know, you, you, get, you get the picture. Who, who, owns the, who owns the vineyard? Who is that? It's God, right? Who owns the vineyard? 
who, who, are, who are the, who are the, uh, the collectors of the fruit that he sends? The prophets, right? We know, we know that. They, they beat some of them. They killed some of them. Look at the history of Israel. That's what they did. They beat them. They killed them. John, whoops, just dropped something there. Sorry, it's mine. Uh, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, right? If you read the, read the book of Micah, the last verses, there's a prophecy about John in there. And when the angel comes and tells, tells, uh, tells Zechariah that he's going to have a son, he quotes the very same prophecy right there. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And then who does he send after that? His son. Who's the son? I mean, he's telling them that right in front of them. We can see it. Why couldn't, why couldn't they see it? Why couldn't they see who he was talking about? Do you see who he was talking about? Of course you do. But they couldn't see it. Then he tells them at the end, he quotes uh, Psalm 118, and it's in verse 10 of chapter 12. Have you not, e- have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He's telling them that right out there. You missed it. You're tripping over the you're chip tripping over the cornerstone. It's right in front of you, and you don't see it. And they sought to seize him, and they but they feared the people. Once again. Then we have a series of questions right after that. And I'm, going to put, I'm going over this fairly quickly because I'm going to back up, put the car in reverse and go back over this again uh, so we can look at it. But I'm going through this pretty quickly. Then they said to him, and this is neat, there's three groups of people that go to talk to Jesus and they try and trip him up. They try and give him trick questions so that he'll, he'll embarrass himself. They can... They can they can denounce him right in front of the people there. First they sent the Pharisees and the Herodians, which is an interesting combination of people right there, the Pharisees and Herodians. Pharisees and Herodians probably didn't want to have anything to do with each other, but they've joined forces against Jesus. Interesting. The Herodians were making a profit off of Rome being, uh, being in charge here. They, they, they wanted the taxes to be paid. They uh, insisted upon that. The the, uh, the Pharisees probably have wanted, had nothing to do with it. They didn't even want to touch the coins. They didn't even want to touch the Roman money. But they, bring the, they both bring this up here together. Interesting combination of people that are coming to, to question him here at this point. Should we pay the taxes or not? Now we know, we know the, uh, the famous answer. Right? He, he says, first of all, Jesus says, give me a coin, which means Jesus didn't have one of them, right? But those guys did. Somebody over there had one of these coins and uh, hands it over to Jesus. And he says, well, whose picture's on it? Caesar's picture's on it. Well, there was also an inscription on there that that said uh, uh, Tiberius Augustus Caesar. uh, Caesar, the son of the great God, uh, which probably was not good for the Pharisees. They didn't want to touch that thing. Jesus says, whose inscription's on it? Caesar's. Okay, whose picture's on it? Caesar's. Give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? What's the next line? That's the one we always give up. Render unto God what belongs to God. Are we rendering unto God what belongs to God? What belongs to him? The fruit in the vineyard. He just talked about it. Where's the fruit? 
Are you rendering that over to God? I, I, I always jump over that part. It's like, wow, he said, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But everything, everything, it's just this little piece of money that belongs to Caesar. Life belongs to God. Give him that. I jumped ahead. Next, the next question we have is, is an interesting one. It's, a, it's a brought by the Sadducees. Right? And the Sadducees, it even says there in the script, Scriptures, they don't believe in the resurrection, right? What a hopeless group of people. Then to not believe, this is all there is? I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm waiting for the trumpet every day. I want to hear it. And why do I want to hear it? Because I want to go home. You know, we won't be wearing masks in heaven, I'm sure. There'll be no, no disease, no sickness, no, uh, that, no night, no, no evil. But the, the Sadducees didn't believe in any of that. So I asked him this trick question about the Leverite marriage, right? There's a whole uh, thing about that where the guy marries seven, the, se the, the, the wife marries all seven of the brothers and then, uh, then she dies and they all die and they're resurrected. And uh, whose, whose wife will she be? And I, th I think what, what's interesting about that is Jesus' answer. And this is an answer for us here too. He doesn't tell him, okay, she's going to be the, the, third, the third husband's mar uh, wife then at that point. No. In heaven, we're not... And I, I'm kind of, it's just kind of a bittersweet. I love my wife. We've been married for 45 years, my wife and I. But she won't be my wife in heaven. I'm kind of sad about that. <laughs> Maybe she's not, I don't know. <laughs> but, but, but I'm kind of sad about that. But we will be together in heaven. Right? And that, that's a cool thing. We're not going, we're not, we'll, we'll be in heaven, but together. And with the answer that Jesus is giving this, is this not the reason, in verse 24, is this not the reason you are mistaken? Isn't this the reason you're mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. You don't under, you guys don't understand the scriptures. And I say to that myself, wow, I want, I want to know what the scriptures said. Do I understand the scriptures? Do you understand the scriptures? Do you read the scriptures every day? I, I lead the men's group at the First Baptist Church, and every week, and they get on my case about this, because every week I say, guys, did you read your Bible this week? And I pick somebody and say, what did you read? And what did it mean to you? What did you read this week? Are you reading it? Are you picking it up every day? Is it, are, it, are you that connected to it? Will you have to be... You have to read it every day. You, you expect God to speak to you from the scriptures every day. Some, some people will read their daily bread, but they won't read the, the, the Bible section. I said, well, you read the daily bread, that's a nice story. But it should be based on the Bible. That that's what we're all here to read, is the Bible. Do you understand the scriptures? These were the leaders of Israel, and he's telling them, you don't understand the scriptures. Secondly, you don't understand the power of God. 
Do you understand the power of God? We should understand the power of God now in this time we're going through right now. Do you know God is still on the throne? He's still in control? Things look, things look weird. I have to tell you, in my life, ne things never looked as weird as this. But God is in control. He is in power. Do you understand the power of God? The next question he's asked is the one about the, the greatest commandment. And I, I love this one too. And this is asked him by the scribes. And it's in verses 12 through th uh, 28 through 34. The scribes in Israel, the ones who, one who, ones who read the scriptures, they should have read the scriptures. That should have been their job. They copied them, transcribed them, and transcribed them. Of all the groups, these are the ones whose business it was to know what the scriptures said. In Matthew and Luke, they're called lawyers. And here is called the scribe. But the law was their business. The law of God was their business to know it. The whole tone of the, the, the scribe's question, he says he saw he answered okay. So he asks the question a little different tone. He, he's almost, almost, the other guys were actually trying to trick Jesus. Almost like the scribe's asking a real question. And it's kind of a policy question. Uh, the, you know, there, there were over 600 laws that they, they determined that there were over 600 laws. And depending upon how you ordered those laws, it was kind of what political party you were with. So they're kind of asking him this, what's the most important law? And that would kind of tell you where Jesus was coming from. Jesus, but Jesus gives them the beginning of what every good Jew should have been doing, reciting twice every day. The Shema, Shema Israel, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Ihad. Hear, O Israel, listen. The Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's where the law all starts from. Love God with everything you've got. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus cuts through, right through the details of being a worshiper of God, cuts right down to the core, put God above everything else, and love people. Hillel, the great, uh, the great rabbi, said, what you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Much of the Jewish religion was picking at points and arguing over which ones were more important. And just like Jesus turned over the tables in the, in the temple, he turned over, the, turned over their teachings right here. Cut right down to the bottom, right down to the core. And just as the Father's house was to be a house of prayer, we are to be followers of God first. Amazing part is that the scribe pretty much agrees with them. The scribe's response reveals that he understood the Old Testament teaching that the moral concerns took precedent over the ceremonial practices, what was going on in there. It wasn't everything that was going on, all the stuff that they did. 
that mattered. It was where their heart was. That's what really mattered. Not the stuff that they were doing, not the order in which they did things, but where it was coming from, right from the heart. Now let's just cut through the others here. Questions about the identity of Christ. Now Jesus asked a question. Oh, the, last, uh, uh, the last question was the last. As a matter of fact, Mark tells us that no one dared ask questions after that. Jesus, Jesus is answering these questions, and they're not, get, they're not liking what they're getting. They're expecting to trip him up, but they're not getting what they want. So now Jesus asked a question about the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the one that all Israel was waiting for. It's standing right in front of them, and they couldn't see him. I mean, I made a stupid little analogy in the beginning about my tape measure. It was right in front of me, but I couldn't see it. But here's the Messiah, right in front of them, and they couldn't see it. He starts asking them questions about the Messiah. What about this? What about that? Who were they waiting for if they couldn't see who was in front of them? What were they waiting for? Were they looking for an answer that would give them worldly freedom? Worldly independence? Jesus was pointing at something much greater than that. He warns them of the danger when he talks about the scribes, about seeking worldly recognition. They were looking for worldly recognition. They were, they were looking for to be looked up to from other people. We read that in the scriptures today. I don't want to go back over all this because there's a lot there. Uh, but there is an interesting point. We'll just pick that up at the end here. Just before the widow's might. Uh, in verse... Uh, uh, 30, 38, it says, in his teaching he was saying, beware of the scribes, the scribe who just asked him a question, who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses for appearance's sake and offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now, interesting, in verse 40, he's talking about devouring widows' houses the very next part he's talking about is the widow with the two mites, or the mite, or the whatever, uh, the small coins. Did one of these scribes devour her house? I don't know. I can't say, but they're right next to each other right there. There's one of these guys that's asking him questions, and now he, now he sees this one widow uh, coming up with the two little small coins and putting them in. He sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. But a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples, they, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, but they put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned. I mean, just putting those together is kind of interesting. <clears throat> but God's, there's a couple of points in here. God sees what people miss. I mean, nobody saw this woman coming in and putting that stone, but he did. Was she doing it to be looked at for other people, or was she doing it so that God would see? Nobody else saw her but him. And he points it out. 
Why, when you do something, why are you doing it? And I'll have to admit myself, sometimes I want people to see what I did. And I want them to say, wow, you did a great job. I say, yes, I did, didn't I? <laughs> I'm very humble about it, though. So, so <laughs> what did the widow probably couldn't have put anything in there for anybody else to see. Is it between you and God that you do things? No. It's a, I, I'll tell you, and I'll tell you something too, it's a great thing to do something that nobody else knows anything about. It's between you and the Lord. Boy, does that bring you close to him. When nobody else knows, but, you, but the only one you're told in secret. That is cool. Pro, another point is proportional giving is not measured in worldly systems. It's not measured by worldly systems. We don't offer, I mean, a million dollars is a million, a million worldly dollars. These two, these, two, uh, these two little coins here meant more than all of that. I don't know how it works. I don't know how God works his economy, but he does. <clears throat> and then I'm just going to, now we went through this whole thing now with Jesus pointing out, he came, here's the Messiah, everything Israel was looking for, they missed it completely. They didn't see what was going on here. They were more interested in everything they were doing, their whole system of how they were doing things, how they were collecting money, how they were running the, 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 the treasury, how they were running the sacrifices, how they were doing all this. That was more important to them than God who was standing right in front of them. They missed it. The very last things in, uh, in this whole section is the first chapter, uh, verses of chapter 13. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see the great buildings? Not one stone will be left on, upon another which will not be torn down. He's going to not only flip the tables over in the temple, the whole temple's coming down. Their whole system of how they did things, he's flipping over. We go through that whole thing and look at that, how they missed it, how they didn't see it, how it was right in front of them. And then I said to myself, now this is where I preach to myself, what does this mean to me? What am I missing? Am I so connected to the way I'm doing things that I'm missing God in this? And believe me, this is, what, this is where I talk to myself. Do I love the ritual of the church more than I love the worship of God? Do I love the things more than Him? Am I so connected to how we do things, that I miss God. They had their world, and they didn't want God to upset their world. Is that the way I am? I mean, G Jesus said, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's commandment number one. Am I doing that? Love your neighbor as yourself. Am I doing that? I don't know if you've heard of her. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield wrote a book uh, called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it's all about how we should be uh, our houses should be open. And I say, I don't want to do that. It messes up my world. Hospitality messes up my world. And I, am I willing to do that? Am I willing to love my neighbor as myself? And it's a hard thing. It's not the easiest thing. And this is a quote from her book. Using your, your Christian home in a daily way make, that's, that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. It requires a firm commitment to the authority of Scripture, covenant membership in a local church, and a willingness to let other people see the dirty laundry on your kitchen floor. People, if you, if you open your house to other people, they'll see something other than the Sunday you. They'll see the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday you. You want them to see that? How, how, do, how do we love our neighbors as ourselves? Where's Christ in my life? Where's Christ in my church? Am I reading the scriptures? Do I know the scriptures? I, I can tell you I don't know them as well as I'd like to, but I'm desperate to know them better. I know, I know a lot of people that just say, well, I don't understand the scriptures, so I don't read them. What do you mean you don't understand this? If your car's broken, you'll open, the, you'll open the manual and you'll start reading the manual. And if you don't understand the manual, you'll read it again. And if you still don't understand the manual, you'll go on, you'll go on the computer and you'll get a YouTube video and, show, and watch the guy showing you how to fix the part you didn't know how to fix. Are you willing to do that with the scriptures? Or you just read and go, nah, I don't understand it. That's it. That's, that, that's the end of it. How desperately do you love God? Do you really need to know? What if is, are you willing to let him turn the table over in your system? To flip the table over and throw everything all over the place? Is, he an, is Christ an add-on to your life, or is he your life? One of my memory verses this year, which was a memory verse of mine years, years ago, but you know, it's kind of weird. I memorized it in the King James. Now, now I'm reading the ESV. I see you got the newest New American Standard Version, but I'm, it still reverts back to the King James in my brain. I don't know. Uh, but uh, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And the next part is so wonderful. Who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith in the Son of God. And, 
I don't know if you have, if you, there's another great Christian book. It's, it's, it's called The Normal Christian Life. I don't know if you ever read it, The Watchman Knee. It's hard to read. You've got to read it a few pages at a time. But, uh, but he has a story in there about his hands. And, uh, and I'm probably messing this up, but he's, he has a couple of friends, that, and, they're, and they're traveling by train, and, he's, and they, they want to know if he wants to play cards with them. And he says, I would love to, but I haven't brought my hands with me. And they looked at him and they said, well, what? You got your hands right there on your hands? He said, no, those are God's hands. I don't have hands anymore. Everything I have belongs to him. I can't, I can't, do, I can't put myself in a place where, where I don't, God doesn't want me to be. Does he own you like that? I mean, there's a lot of questions I ask myself, and I'm asking you, but I'm asking myself too. Where's the church in this? Is it that group of people that, that I love? Or is, it the build, or is it this building? And I'll read you one other quote before we close. And it's a quote by a uh, kind of an unorthodox guy. He's a, uh, he's a Baptist farmer, preacher, philosopher. <clears throat> Wendell, a uh, poet also, Wendell Berry is his name. Might, not, might have some kind of weird theology here and there, but I think he's got uh, some good points too, and I think looks at things from a couple of different perspectives. He said, As I have read the scriptures over the years, the belief has grown in me that Christ did not come to found an organized religion. But he came instead to found an unorganized one. He seems to have come to carry religion out of the temples into the fields and the sheep pastures, onto the roadsides and to the banks of the rivers, the houses of sinners and publicans, all the places that Jesus met and was, into the towns and wilderness, toward the membership of all that is there. He says, well, you can read and see what you think, but that's what I gleaned out of it. And I just thought about that as I was thinking about that. Jesus destroyed Destroy, destroyed the temple. Have we just built another one? What did we make? And that was something I was contemplating. As I, was, I was saying, if you have problems, blame Ralph, please. He told me to do the whole chapter here. So. so I went through this whole chapter, and I said that. All the people, what they couldn't see, what that was right in front of them. Ask yourself, what, what's right in front of me that I can't see? Do I know the scriptures? Am I looking to serve God with everything I've got? Do I love the people that are around me, then my neighbors? Who are my neighbors? And Luke, the, the, the guy asks, the, the lawyer asks right after that, who are my neighbors? In that same, the same passage, because he wanted to justify himself. And we got, we got an answer on that, right? Whoever needs you is your neighbor. Uh, ask yourself these questions. Uh, and, and, and we get right down to it. I mean, the, they loved, the, the, the Jewish leaders loved their building more than they loved God. Where is the building of the church in us? Is it the building we love, or do we love him? And uh, it, it's a great journey we're on, right? Yeah. We don't know where this is all going to come out, but we know that God is still in control. And uh, pray that he leads us and opens our eyes, right? The Pharisees couldn't see because God didn't open their eyes. I pray that he opens ours. Let's pray.
Father, we just close our, our eyes now. We come before you. We lift you up. We praise you. We thank you for everything you've given to us, for everything you are to us. We pray that you would open our eyes that we could see, that we would see where you'd lead us, and we'd have the, wow, not only the ability, which we've given us in the Holy Spirit, the desire to follow you, uh, but you give us the strength that we need to follow you, even in these times. Lord, we have a light to shine in this world. As the world grows darker, I pray that that light would shine brighter. We lift you up, we praise you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, our Savior who's coming again, whose trumpet we wait for, and the sound of his voice calling us, we wait for him and we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen.